are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. What do the book industry and the fashion industry have in common? Our guest this week thinks there are quite a few similarities. So many, in fact, that he decided to take the technology that revolutionized on-demand book printing and bring it to the fashion industry. Kirby Best is the CEO of On Point Manufacturing, a garment manufacturer based in the United States in Florence, Alabama. On Point is a cut and sew company specialized in customization, and they accept orders for as little as one piece. We take a deep dive into their production process. When you are doing just one piece, who is responsible for sourcing and purchasing raw materials? Who is responsible for product development? How exactly does the production process work? How does on-point manufacturing manage to produce efficiently and cost-effectively when they are only making one piece? We then get into some broader questions. How does on-point manufacturing's approach differ to other manufacturers also seeking to quote-unquote climb up the value chain? And how does producing just one of a given product affect the relationship between the manufacturer and the brand? If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Not much of an Instagram person. We feel you. We have a love-hate relationship with social media too. Sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Kirby, let's start by going back a little bit. How did On Point Manufacturing get its start? What's the story? <laughs>、um, I started off in the book industry, and the book industry is very, very similar to the garment industry, although both deny it.、Um, tell me a product that's made out of cloth, that's uh, cut, uh, sewn, and and、uh, folded. And ship directly to the customer, and of course everybody goes a blouse, a skirt, a, a jacket,、mm. and I go no, a hardcover book,、mm. and people forget they're all sewn together.、Um, in the book industry, I ran several、uh, large printing companies. In fact, the world's largest on-demand company, and、um, this was、um, I was working on、uh, using old technology and getting it、um, to shorter and shorter runs. And there was a guy in Nashville, Tennessee, who said, "No, let's look at this differently. Let's start with a run length of one, and let's build technology、mm. up from there." And、um, I went down to see him. And the funny thing, he started his company in the Singer sewing machine factory. Oh、yeah. no, kidding! So kind of the small world <laughs> tie-in. And、um, so when I went to see it,、um, there were 19 highly paid IBM executives running this. And they were producing about two books every hour. Okay, yeah.、Wow. So I turned to this guy and I said, "You know, this doesn't work." And he goes, "No, it will. It will." And、um, <clears throat> I didn't talk with him for a couple of months. And he phoned me up and he said, 
would you come down and run this for me? And uh, I said, great. And never been to Tennessee, never lived in the South. I'm from Canada originally. To, to give you an idea today, and I refer to titles. When I refer to a title like Harry Potter as a title, um, Gone with the Wind as a title, it's those are titles as opposed to units. And so in the book industry now, when I first started 20 years ago, um, um, we printed, you know, maybe a thousand titles a week. Um, and today they print 295,000 different book titles every day. And one, one of each. each. One of each. Yeah, think about wow. that one. So That's here's crazy. some statistics. 55% uh, of all books in North America come out of the plants that we built. And 95% um, of all books now are launched as a print-on-demand product. So it, it's changed wow. the whole industry, and very few people know about it. It's one of those silent, massive industries behind the scenes. It was all overshadowed by e-books that were, um, you know, got all the spotlight and everything else. Why do you think that was? Oh, it was exciting. It was new. It was dynamic. It was changing. We often say that the author and the publisher fight to see who's closer to God. And then everybody else goes <laughs> down that until you get to the book printer. And he's kind of one level above pond scum. And the, and the, and the, oh, it's interesting because I feel the same about the fashion industry. Absolutely. We were lucky because we came in not as a book printer. We were really a software technology company. And so we enjoyed a much higher status in the, um, in the business. I have a friend who has her own sustainable apparel brand that actually also does its own production. And at times, that's been a real challenge in terms of getting investment. It was seen, the fact that production staff were on her payroll was seen as too much of a risk. Yes, and I suffer from the same thing. We were meeting with an investment banker yesterday who's very interested in, in our story. And we said, you know, a lot of people are going to look at us as a cut and sew operation, a manufacturer. Some of the smarter mm -hmm. ones are going to look at as a software company. Oh, and then some are going to look at us as an information company because in the end, we will have more real-time information of trends than anybody on the planet. So it's about shifting the mindset about how you're perceived. And I think that's the perfect segue to get into a little bit more detail about how on-point manufacturing actually works. One of the challenges that's difficult for on-demand manufacturing, at least in my experience, is all of the work that needs to be done before production can actually start. And by that, I mean, in part, the sourcing and getting the raw materials, because often, for example, a raw material supplier, say a fabric mill, will have a minimum order quantity that far, far exceeds the quantity that a cut-and-sew factory doing on-demand production would ever be able to commit to using. And so all of the logistics costs associated with 
um, getting the material into, you know, the country where the cutting and sewing is happening become exorbitant. And also the, you know, the surcharges from the mill itself become too expensive to cope with, if they're even willing to do it at all. I've talked to mills who and, and inquired about small quantities and not even a surcharge would have persuaded them to do it. The second challenge that, um, or the second piece of work that needs to be done before production can start is product development. And this requires effectively taking a often a drawing and turning it into technical specifications and the gap between what the design team has in their head and what the production team is actually able to produce can often take a lot of time to resolve and requires quite a lot of rounds of samples. So this is a barrier to producing only one or a couple of pieces of a particular style. Effectively, the overhead associated with the development process just would never be recuperated if you were only going to produce one. And that's because the development process usually isn't charged or, or paid for separately. It's, it's sort of incorporated into the order. And I will joke that uh, we get designers who um, absolutely well organized. They give us a digital tech pack. They have a perfect file. They have, they're on Gerber, you know, 13.0 and, and right up to date. And then we get designers that come in with a paper napkin and go, hey, I drew this dress. Can you make it? And so <laughs> you get the full gamut today. Um, how do you, how do you yeah. cope with that? So the, the answer is pretty simple. We ask, we do two things. We either ask that they give us a perfect file for us or we charge mm -hmm. them for doing that work. And we, I pick on New Yorker designers all the time, but, you know, we get these New Yorkers that come down and go, um, what do you mean we have to do that? What do, what do you mean we do that? We go, yeah, you've got to tell us so that it's exactly the way you want it. You don't want us guessing on what you think, what we think you think. So in other words, you ask the brand or the designer to take care of the product development and the sourcing and the purchase of the raw materials. Is that right? And then what happens? So I'll go through the kind of the whole process. Once the product is set up, or we say launched, um, what'll happen is you supply as the designer or the brand, the fabric and the notions for us. So everything's in place, ready to go. We then open up an ordering portal for you. And this is just the start so that you um, will get your orders all day, all night from your website. And um, then you'll go into our ordering portal and you'll click what you need. So you might say, I need one of this and five of this and three of this and that and that, and this is where they're going. So the orders come in day in, day night and day, and they get sorted into two buckets. The first bucket will be the fabric type. And then the second bucket will be the the color of the fabric. And so the, mm. this, the uh, cutter in the morning, uh, she'll come into the cutting table and she presses go and a green laser beam will say, pull out 22 feet, nine inches of fine wool, 59.99, whatever the number is. 
and so navy blue. And so it always has as much details as it can get. So to keep on going, the, the cutter has now turned it on and the green laser lays out exactly what she has to put on the table or he has to put on the table. Now, likely the assistants have already picked that fabric and have it rolled out or ready for them. So it's not random. We, we have some time to, to kind of get things organized. So there's not big gaps in between. So then the robotic arm cuts the pieces. And now the laser beam um, uh, outlines the last piece that's going to be sewn in that product, that order. So the last piece goes into this yellow tote, and then the second last, the third last, until finally the first two pieces that are going to be sewn together are on top. She then scans the order and scans the tote license plate, a, a barcode on the edge of the tote, by tote, you mean just like like a like a yellow box, bu- like a yeah. Like a you bin, see the right? yellow buckets uh, zipping around our factory, and that's always mm-hmm. one product per tote. Always, always, always. Okay, mm. so um, that tote and that order are now married until it comes off and goes out through FedEx or UPS or USPS. So she puts it on the brain, and now. The brain is going to take it to each individual sewer. And this is... It's like a conveyor uh, belt? It is in plant number one, a conveyor belt. In plant number two, it's robots that will take it from place to place. The system is a little bit like like in the airport, how the luggage going around. Most factories rely on the inline system, meaning that a garment is sewn and then it's moved to the next desk and moved to the next desk and moved to the next desk. So I I had to keep that because that is the most efficient way to make something. But I wanted to have the flexibility that I could change it very quickly. So when Henry Ford developed this inline system, um, the car companies take about a month and a half to change over every year to the new model. And I said, well, I can't spend that much time i've got to figure out a way to get all the efficiencies of inline but change it over every second and a half so so yeah this is kind of a critical part can i ask a question about that (laughs) (laughs) because the factory that i managed in cambodia was actually looking at trying to do customization and take on smaller orders one of the challenges that we had was that um, as you say, having a line set up will always be per, like if you break a shirt down into 10 steps, say, then having a line step will, a line setup will always ensure that each of those 10 steps is done as quickly as possible. But this really requires stable demand because otherwise you could have your setup with your 10 steps and your 10 people and every single step perfectly optimized. But if people are sitting idle because there's, you know, a a lag in orders, it was more cost effective to have multi-skilled operators who did more of the production steps, but maybe took slightly longer to do them. But then, you know, the overall output per labor hour was better. (laughs) You have my life in a bucket right there. So, so, 
Um, you you talked on you you mentioned four things: load leveling or optimization, stable demand, mm-hmm. and I put down library. So here's the trick to on demand: and you build a library of products, and you need a certain amount in that library so that orders start to actually stabilize in their demand, and you you're almost load leveling the library so that you have products that are winter-based products or summer-based products or fall or spring-based products. Um, but you need a certain, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head. You need a certain amount in that library before you start to even begin to load level the plant. Now, load leveling is from demand, but also load leveling when you're actually in manufacturing. I'll I'll finish the flow because I think this is, you'll love this part. The tote is going uh, on the upper brain and the upper brain is going to decide where the tote goes. So it comes to a barcode reader and there is an exchange of information that takes a millisecond, but um, the exchange will be the, the, the system will say to the tote, what are you here for? And the tote will say, well, I, the, I need a single needle sewer. And the, op, the system will say, we have 23 single needle sewers. What color thread do you need? And the tote will say, I need black thread. And the system will respond saying, of the 23 single needle sewers, we have five on black thread. What caliber of sewer do you need? Do you need a master sewer? Do you need a, a sample sewer, a gold, silver, bronze, or brass sewer? And so uh, the system will respond saying, well, this is a, I'm making this up, a Vera Wang dress. Oh, you're going to need a gold or a master sewer for this. So great. Of the 23 on a single needle, five are on black thread, three are master sewers. So it'll say, and this is the load leveling part, how will you get me through that operation the fastest? And it will say, okay, uh, Susie has five totes waiting for her at her station to manufacture. Janie has uh, three totes and uh, Sam has one tote. And the tote will say, great, send me to Sam. So the tote goes automatically to Sam, and that that all happens in a millisecond. And so then Sam does the sewing, puts it back on, and it goes around the brain again and asks the same series of questions, but for the next operation. And the next operation might be something as simple as, um, um, you know, I need a part. So they don't need a master sewer to sew on a part. And... um, and that's how the system works, and it goes around until it's finished, and then it goes straight to shipping, well, inspection, and then uh, folding and packing and pressing and shipping, and out the door. So in, in this inline system, the special point, the key is they could make different types of products at the same time or even the same day without changing the setting of the system. Is that, that right? Is correct. I think that this is really interesting because a lot of times when people imagine or envision the future of the fashion industry and the role that automation will play in the future of the fashion industry, people imagine 
robots who are able to sew. And we should point out that that technology is in process as well, though it's not quite there yet. Um, but that's not at all what you, Kirby, and, and on-point manufacturing are doing. What you're doing is you're automating everything around the cut and sew process, but the cutting and sewing itself is still being done by people operating machines. Hey, that is uh, very interesting. Now you can see uh, the traditional manufacturers, how they provide, uh, how they make value-added services. Basically, in my eyes, is to grow the dependence from the buyers to the suppliers. For instance, in the episode of uh, of Makella, we knew that uh, suppliers not just uh, make design, uh, not just make tech pack for the brands. Sometimes they even provide a finished uh, design. They provide a series of finished pens for the buyers to select. And of course, the buyers will change a few details, but basically the whole design is done by the factories. So that is very different from Kirby's way. So what's the unique value-added services that provided by on-point manufacturing? I think Kirby just made one step forward. He thinks mm. for the brands that what I can provide to serve your end consumers better, which is I personalize the whole production. I make a product really fit that specific end consumer. Even there is just a one customer, it doesn't matter. We can still make the whole product really fit that person's size or that person's preference. Right, which is really interesting because it's basically the opposite to what we've heard in other episodes from other suppliers. Like you said, Jesse, in episode seven, when we talked to Michaela, it was like the strategy for being more relevant or less replaceable or, you know, increasing your power at the negotiating table was to assume more and more responsibility. And that speaks to the question that we asked at the very beginning of this episode, which was about raw materials and product development. And, you know, so many suppliers that we've talked to have increasingly taken responsibility for sourcing, for product development. And um, and in this case, on-point manufacturing is is sort of equalizing the balance of power at the negotiating tables, but not by assuming responsibility for this sort of increasingly heavy uh, or increasingly broad scope of tasks, but instead of actually going very, very narrow and so and specializing in it. And so for the first time, I think maybe brands and, and customers are able or are willing to say, okay, we'll do the product development ourselves. We will do the sourcing ourselves, including figuring out and fronting the costs for the purchase of raw materials, precisely because you're able to produce exactly what I want, totally customized, and only one of them, if that's what I want, which is pretty radical and revolutionary, I think. So Kirby, you have your own thoughts about the product development process specifically. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That that whole process has to become so much simpler and so much easier. Just so you know, I do run a software company and the prime focus of the software company is reducing the friction of going from the designer to a, a, a manufactured product. 
And, and that includes all the tech pack and everything else. So, so the designer designs the product. And as you know, they usually, once the designer, the creative person uh, hands it off to a technical designer and the technical designer is the one who really makes it now into something you can manufacture. They're making the tech pack as such. And the tech pack generally today is still um, by far handwritten or typed or uh, on a spreadsheet. It's mm-hmm. it's not electronically based well enough to flow in um, uh, automatically. So the software company is helping organize that. So does it does it take like an illustration and sort of extract a recipe from it? Is that the um, idea? No. Or? Well, yes, it is. That is part of it. Um, really, the, the whole genesis is is giving the tools to the right creative people, uh, to any person in the world, and uh, being mm. able to do it in minutes rather than months. And for listeners who are interested in learning more about this software company, there was an exciting announcement just a couple of weeks ago, which we will provide a link to in the show notes. So I want to shift gears a little bit here and turn to something that really surprised both Jesse and I when we when we found this out about on-point manufacturing. And that is that when you ship a good, you're not shipping it to the brand who's hired you to produce it. You're shipping it directly to the end consumer. And the reason that this surprised us was because in the garment factories that we've been part of, this would have been unheard of. I mean, it really requires a lot of trust on the part of the brand to be willing to send out a product to their customer before they've even seen it themselves. Yeah, well, just thinking, uh, it's true, brands today in another continent, let's say, receive goods from China or Vietnam. Yes, it's a big surprise for them. So it's there, is, there are great risks. So to prevent that, they set up lots of uh, steps to, to prevent, receive a bad surprise. For instance, third-party inspection companies, for instance, for water. If they ever have a doubt, they could ask for water not to pick up, not to uh, receive, not to accept the goods, so to delay the shipment and so on. So just thinking when I heard you said the clothes were directly shipped to the end consumers from from your production place, I feel, yeah, it's a lot of trust lot of there. Trust. You're right. We just kind of assume you've got to have that. So It's interesting, though, because you assume that you have to have it, and yet in so many of the conversations we've had on this podcast, that seems to be the, the theme that we return to is just how critical trust between supplier, manufacturer and brand really is and often how absent it is. And that's like, that's for me, the, the big, the question floating around in my mind is, is how do you get that? So I'm going to ask what's maybe a bit of a controversial question, but do you think it's easier for you to get that trust as an American manufacturer? I've never even thought about trust. Um, And it makes so much sense because so many of the New York um, designers go, well, I'm coming down to your factory. I want to watch the production. We're going, no, we don't want you on our floor. Oh, Oh, really? Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's so interesting that they want to come. Yeah. And some we 
Usually, some we love to come. I mean, we really do because it's fun. We learn things and they go, oh, and we can teach them things. And it's, it's um, you know, there's a, a giant gap between the reality of sewing a garment and somebody drawing a garment up on a, a you know, a drafting board anywhere in the world. You've got to know your stuff on manufacturing. And if they can see it and go, well, if you put it this way and you have the seam allowance on this side and the seam allowance on this side and the, and the let's say, a taping line going through, you've now got uh, four layers of fabric and um, or three layers of fabric. And they, they go, oh, I had no idea. No wonder there's a bump there. And little things like that that we <laughs> – it's a great relationship. Um, but there are times that, you know, they that, that it's not. <laughs> and those are the customers that we – say okay you know it's you're probably better off suited somewhere else and nine out of ten of them come back within a few weeks and go i i want to work with you guys i gotta rethink things now never never thought about it but it's so important um i just uh i just assume it's there and it's it's you're right we have to earn it and um Actually, I don't think it's about earning it or or giving it. I, I say it a bit different now today about this trust because um, Kim and I talked about this trust the other day, and we we uh, from the interviews we had in the past episodes, we realized, for instance, if today, if you as a buyer go into China, speak to China factories, even you give lots of trust to them. I mean, everything is very open, very friendly. Somehow, when Chinese factories, when they have some challenges or problems to catch up with uh, shipment, or they have some technical problems, they know you expect them to tell you, but they probably will not tell you. They probably will tell, I don't know, your Chinese merchandiser or a Chinese buyer, if you have one, because there is a natural bond in between, because the both sides share same language, same background, yeah. same skin mm-hmm. color, same habits. Yes. Or same ideas, so they assume, or maybe they even don't assume. They just naturally feel closer to the other one. You know, the other one look alike. So I, I suppose that happens between you and your 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 customers. It's a kind of natural connection, I would say. Yeah. But I think there's also a lot of fear, right? Like on the, I mean, I think that this is part of it. But there's also just so much fear because the 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 sort of power imbalance in the relationship between in a, not necessarily in your in your context Kirby but in the in more typical manufacturing environments you have often these huge brands with these much smaller suppliers and the power is so unequal that it really inhibits or or makes open communication between the two parties very difficult because you're you're there's always this sort of threat looming on the supplier side that you're replaceable that you could you in a moment could be dropped and could go somewhere else yeah yeah i i think um jesse you are right you know the cultural differences are uh far fewer between us and say a new york um buyer um we just Remember, let's go back to risk for a second, because this might explain some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, when a buyer is buying 3000 of a garment or 30000 of a garment, it's a lot more at stake than when they're buying one. And mm-hmm. so if we screw up mm-hmm. on one, you know, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's awful. But 
it's better than 30,000. You know, it, it's, it's a different level. Now, you know, over the years, we've had imbalances like that in the book industry where Barnes & Noble were the, the 800-pound gorilla, and then Amazon was the 800-pound gorilla. In our industry, um, you know, we're watching Amazon and we're watching Walmart. And yeah, because no one else has left, um, you know, it's, it's, you're right, there is that horrible imbalance of power. I think we're pretty lucky because we're really the only ones that can do what we do now. And, um, you know, there's, it, it, it's changing and, and we think it's going to um, explode into the world marketplace because it just makes more sense. Kirby, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insight, your experience. It's been a fascinating story. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.